Welcome to the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Tackling some of the biggest issues in men's mental health. Hello, I am back. Welcome to Yorkshire Grit Cross. Today, I've travelled like Billy Elliot on the bus down to London and I'm in Wimbledon. And I'm with a really special guest today, someone who is a bit of an enigma. I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying and really, really looking forward to hearing his story is uh, Alex Richardson. Alex, welcome to Yorkshire Grit. Thank you for having me. This is when people uh, zone out with my uh, London accent. <laughs> this is the opposite of Yorkshire Grit. <laughs> it couldn't be any more opposite. You know, um, thanks for having me in your lovely home. It's like a, um, it's like a scene off a Bond film here. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> We're very, very fortunate to live where we do and... Uh, you know, and never, never take things for granted. Well, people don't know, but I, I actually lived in Wimbledon as a kid. Yeah, you said your parent, parents from here. Yeah, my dad was from Surrey. He had a, mm. We had a flat, we had a small flat in, in uh, London, in Wimbledon. So it's nice to come back. Thanks for having me here today and coming on the podcast. We've known each other for a while. We chatted a little bit and I watched you, you know, race nationals and Mark Cavendish, you went, slow down, lad. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Yeah, he, um, on the, there was a hill on the finishing circuit. And, uh, you know, that's where the difference can or can't be made for someone like me on that course. Uh, short, short climb. And uh, he obviously wanted to keep the group together. So he sort of says slow down. And, uh, you know, I tried to speed up or make it hard for him. But uh, he, he, was, he was in phenomenal shape. So, uh, you know, credit to him. Is he quite vocal? In, is, he, is, he, is he a talker? He is very vocal when he wants to be, or, you know, typically when someone's suffering as well, they become more vocal or really wants it. They want to control the situation. But I, I completely get that because, you know, he's a determined guy. And even when you see videos of him, you know, at the tour, getting annoyed about things, I completely understand it. And that is why he's as good as he is, because he's just so driven. Did you have a little chat with him after? Yeah, he was really kind after because he won. Yeah, <laughs> he, he would he would have complained about something had he not. But that that's that's also fun. You know, he was um, you know really nice, really complimentary, and chinky uh, rates you. I think what he said to me after the race is he knew I was strong and that he didn't want me to get a gap. So I, you know, that's really nice to hear from him because he's. There's no question about it. He's one of the greatest ever cyclists. And all I have is respect and admiration for him. You know, it's a privilege to share the podium with him. He is actually. You know, f for someone like me, who is ultimately a good amateur and a fan. Hang on, we just had a chat about this. Uh, <laughs> Hang on, we just had a chat. <laughs> you know, amateur slash. <laughs> but, you know, we, we all are. And I, I came into this seven years ago. And when I came in, I was that guy riding around Richmond Park after work. And Mark Cavendish was Mark Cavendish at the time. And then slowly you get closer and closer to competing with these people. And, oh, God, like, I'm actually competitive. Oh, like, I'm, I'm hurting him. Oh, my God. You know, or like, I'm in this race. I'm feeling all right. Uh, you know, you, you get those sensations, which is very exciting. We'll get back to um, the national championships. But the main reason, like, I want to speak to you is probably less about the cycling mm. and you know you are a bit of an enigma 
no one quite knows your story. You just, you know, touched on it then about seven years ago that you kind of got in. So you did get into cycling relatively late compared to what some people do because you're 32 years of age now. Yeah. Could you let listeners know, can you just tell us a little bit about the early days, your life, where you're from? Absolutely. So I think also the, the waters have been a little bit muddied here, you know, over the years. And it's sort of Chinese whispers or whatever, you know, someone comes to me and they say, oh, you did this, that and the other. And it's like, well, it wasn't exactly that, you know, but it's, you know, more or less. As set the record straight, Alex. Exactly. I'm going to set the record straight. So at, uh, I did my A-levels. I've always been involved in sport. Did my A-levels, figured, you know, the studying's not really for me. This is in London? Uh, in London, grew up in London. Um, parents from London. Dad's mother was Italian. My mum's from New Zealand. So in theory, actually, I'm, I've got a New Zealand passport. Well, I haven't in practice. And what's, well. your, dad, what's your dad called? Uh, Mark. And your mum's called? But his, his father was English, but his mother was Italian. And what's your mum called? Sheena. Sheena? Sheena, yeah. A little, a little, Lo- a lovely woman, completely different. Like he's a hothead, certainly when he was younger. And she is the most calm, lovely lady I've ever met. You know, just a wonderful person. And uh, so, yeah, grew up in London. So nice, nice balance there. Got loads of bollockings through my teens. Just brothers and sisters. No. Yeah. Yeah. One brother, one sister. I'm the middle child. Do you, do you want to talk about them? Yeah. I mean, they, they live in London. My sister's an interior designer. Uh, brother's a chef. So, yeah, different things. Uh, they're, they're both having success in their respective fields and seem to be enjoying things. She's married. He's got a long term girlfriend. Are you, are you close with them as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they come over here on a, on a, you know? I'm pretty useless at doing barbecues and stuff like that. So uh, her husband's pretty good. So we go over there. And then I can sort of leave the kids to run around. And <laughs> so you've got bollockins as a kid? Always. Parents being called in and out of school. Uh, <laughs> being threatened to be chucked out of school. But always lighthearted stuff. Just a bit of a class clown attention seeking a little bit maybe uh but th- yes things certainly have drastically changed as i've got older and found direction with myself but i, I wasn't interested in school that was a problem I, I loved sport i was always great at football great at tennis uh, and that went on till about 18 i was in america on a sort of like a academy voluntary tennis academy and that's what i wanted to do anyway hey, were you were you a tennis player yeah, yeah, I'm really good, really good. Even now? I mean, you, you never sort of lose it. I can pick up a racket and still hit the ball really well. Honestly, I've hit a ball for f- 10 hours in the last 10 years. You know, I've just got no interest. I, I grew sick of it. I've almost scarred from 12 to 18 years old of getting up at five in the morning, doing it for two and a half hours, like crying on tennis courts. And this was in America? This was, um, well, a, for the a, latter part. For the latter part, yeah. But it all revolved around, uh, you know, in London at academies and stuff like that. But I just grew sick of it and I've got no interest to do it. I didn't know that. I did not know that about you, that you were, you know, because tennis is, you know, my dad's a massive tennis fan. Yeah. And we used to go to Wimbledon every now and then. Yeah. He loves tennis. I think tennis is the only sport that mm. is one of the, the few sports like football that you actually enjoy doing it. Like, you know that feeling when you get topspin? <laughs> it's like it it's is. a lovely feeling because with, with cycling you don't enjoy it like if someone said to you you've got to do four hours you've got to do four hours this afternoon mm. haven't you you said yeah. to me are you looking forward to doing that 
I'm on about a five at the moment, but I think I can get that up to about an eight in motivation. Okay. But the the thing is, three days out of a race, let's say an eight-day stage race like Tour of Britain, something can only go wrong. So that's the only reason I'm not looking forward to this afternoon because something can happen or not go the way I want it to go. Like a crash, like, I don't know, bad train. It'd, it'd be fine. Like I've been here a million times before. So it will sort itself out. So the and I'll sort myself out. The tennis academy, yeah, didn't work out. Came back. Do you know why I think I grew frustrated with tennis because I lacked. I had sort of top hundred to two hundred talent in the world, but I lacked that finite talent that you need, and I didn't lack the drive or determination. It was more the talent, but it was the talent, and I just found that so frustrating. Just. Yeah, it killed me. And it used to get me, I used to get so angry with it. As a group of team. And that's what I quite like about cycling. You can go out and get it all out and come back completely cooked. And you have no energy to give any more. I honestly live for that. It really makes me a better person to be able to absolutely get it all out and then come back and be a calm caring father husband uh do things for my family you know that kind of thing because i'm there's no anger in there anymore when you came back from the tennis mm. and how old were you about what 16 15 16? yeah 17 18 17 18 back to london mm. what happened then i've also been raised if you're going to do something, do it properly. Otherwise, don't do it at all. Is this Mark or Sheena? Mark, yeah. And always pushed, like, just told that you need to do stuff. Get on with it. You know, there's, there's no negotiation here. You do it. So I think certainly in my teens, he was very harsh with that. It also educated me to have a certain approach to certain things. Anyway, so when the tennis stopped, I started working and went, I had a good in with that. You know, I didn't need qualifications. When you say working, what do you mean? You know, I said I didn't do that well at school. I mean, I, I, I was a B grade student all the way through. In GCSEs? Uh, and GCSEs and A level. I, you know, I got five Bs in five Cs at GCSE. Didn't set the world alight, but it didn't embarrass myself. Exactly, you know. School is also, and you learn this as you get older, it's how you perform at school dictates almost your future, right? So it's a very important time frame because it will then dictate where you go to university and that will then dictate where you get a job if that's what you, in, in the given industry. Um, and you don't really realize that, but all school is is an ap application to learn, an application to apply yourself, which can be demonstrated in 10, 15 different ways. Subjects. Yep. Subjects, you know, but then you have sport, other things that you can expose yourself to, to... <laughs> to demonstrate that but school is is the primary one isn't it when you're 15 to 22 school and university um but i didn't really realize that at the time i realized i ended up getting in, an internship at 18 um while I, I did six months at university which uni uh, essex university and what did you study business and economics and did you leave uni yeah so i got i, I begged this guy at tradition who I was put in contact with through someone, I can't remember who, but I basically managed to get a 10-day internship at Tradition. Which is that a business? Is it's a, bro a huge London broker. 
so what was I 19 at the time and uh, I spent 10 days there and I just went full gas at the worked out who I needed to go full gas to and tell him I want it and he gave me a job so I spent eight months there what a, a tradition as a broker is this on the futures, Mark? Is this futures? Uh, foreign exchange. Foreign exchange. So I did uh, dollar ruble. Fuck. And I was broking the swaps market, you know, with all the big London banks. Traveling to Russia. Um, hang on, hang on. Back up, Alex. Back up here. This is too exciting. You're doing this at a service. Dollar rubles. What, what, what the fuck is this? So a bank is going to buy or exchange a currency in large volume. And you're just putting the trade through. You're booking the trade. And how do you do but, but that? You, you take a commission off the value of the trade, a percentage, and you're operating on volume, basically. You want to do as much volume and as much size as possible. You know, you have market makers, you have guys that are on the buy side, guys that are on the sell side, and they, or they need to, you know, they've got stuff that needs to be leveled off every day, right? And what banks, like Merrill Lynch? Yeah, Goldman's, Merrill Lynch, yeah. Barclays. Uh, you, Barclays, I, I remember, were a market maker, so they would give you a wider market, and then that, you'd close that market, and a good broker has a narrow market, right? They have the clients. With the information, you get more people, right? So you have the bid and the offer, and you want a narrow, you want the narrowest market, possible on the buy and the sell side to offer to the, the market a competitive price. So if you have narrow prices all the time, you're going to get the most trades. And yeah, you operate on volume and that's a relationships business. But if you're not there at the desk 14 hours a day from five o'clock in the morning, you're not going to have the information and subsequently the market. And how old are you then? Uh, 19. Get to fuck. So you're telling me at 19, you're, you're doing like what? Multi-million pound deals at 19? Oh, the trades were massive. Minimum ticket size on some of these contracts is $30 million up to $100, $200 million. And you're taking percentage. It's okay. a small percentage, but... So the internship was 10 days. And then do you get taught after that? Or is it just, fi just find your own way? You fix uh, your contract and you get a percentage of what you bring into the company. Uh, 30% typically in these brokerages. And that's what you got? Yeah. So at 19. you get 30% of what you bring in. So it's the, the carrots being dangled there to work hard. So more time you spend there. But then also it's very easy to say, oh, you go to London, you just start broking and doing this kind of thing. But it's really high pressure environment. Uh, it's really stressful. You've got to be really good under pressure, really quick with maths. And you've also got to be able to understand like bullshit as well because i was talking about a narrow market you might know the prices out there in the market but you don't have it so you have to be confident to tell your client who's a buyer that you've got the offer at that price because he's you're seeing it elsewhere he's seeing it elsewhere so you then get his bid you see and then you attract the offer and there was a guy called matt mandak who was 28 years old when I started and just, I've never seen anything like it. Like two, two phones on his ears all day, like muting one, talking through the other, got the buyer and the seller on, on the lines and just the amount of business he did at 28 years old was just something I've never seen before. Anyway, so, uh, after, after that, it went on and uh, obviously the ruble market got massively slashed 
and killed in recent times. I was a long time out of the market, but I, I still speak to him sometimes. And he said, yeah, it's just killed the market. But these guys were killing it at, uh, you know, young guys around the desk. It was a top performing desk on, in the whole of the company. But yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it, it's like it, when I was there at 19, it was like what you see on television. And the boss was a complete lunatic. Are we talking, I don't want to keep on using the whole Wolf of Wall Street type thing, but it was like people doing gear. Was it like sex, oh, energy, yeah. drinking, money? There was certainly a lot of that on the desk and like not in the office. I don't know if it happened in the office, but certainly outside the office, it happened a lot, yeah. Not necessarily with me, but the thing is that this wasn't a particularly, I'm not really from that type of background. So where I understood the obsessiveness and driven side of it and performance side of it, I didn't really like the environment. It was just a bit tacky for me almost. Would you wear the pinstripe suits and the Rolex? No, no, no. no. Like it was casual by then. It was becoming more and more casual work outfits. Where was the office? It was just over London Bridge. Fuck. Tower Bridge. The one that goes up, I forget. And, uh, <laughs> and then, so at 19, you're earning? Yeah, like when I left, I got a good bonus. How much are we talking? Come on. Uh, enough to buy nice cars at that age. But then I spent a lot of what I earned because that's what you do at 19. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I left and I bought a nice car or whatever and then I went on to find another broker job I really grew to hate that as soon as a year but yeah I got a payout and stuff like that and I also had my uh, dad who worked in the city in, was he a banker or a uh, he was in oil was he and that was the natural sort of involvement for me and where I went so I went to work in the transportation of oil but I had, you know, good direction there. I had a good in with clients. I had some experience. So that was, let's say, business was directed my way and you could capitalize off that business. But again, you have to know your market. You know, even if you're moving oil around the world and you're finding a ship, you have to know your market in terms of like when the ship needs bunkers because the, the guy that's moving the oil, the oil trader, Hang on, what do you mean ship needs bunkers? What, what are you on about? I was uh, shipbroking after that. And what you do is you find a ship to move oil around the world. How, how do you find a ship? So you, you speak to the owners of all the vessels. And I specialize in the Mediterranean market. And you load the ship in the Black Sea from Russia. And then you might take it somewhere in the Med. So you would turn up to work yeah. and find ships. Find people selling oil. No, they, the trader wants to move the oil from A to B and he would capitalize on the price difference. And you have to get a ship to load the oil on a two-day window, typically, the lay can, load the oil and then move that oil to discharge at another location. And then you get a percentage brokerage fee on the cost of moving that oil. But the point I'm making is even if you have the guy that is giving you the business to move the oil, if your ship isn't there on time, if the owner's bullshitting you saying he can make the dates to employ his vessel, because then the more it, the vessel is rented out effectively, the less 
lost time there is, the more rent he gets, right? If it's in use all the time, if your house is occupied the whole time, it's not unoccupied and you're getting the rent for a month, an extra month, you know what I mean? The point is that you have to know everything that's going on in the market with those ships, how much fuel the vessel has, what? whether it needs to... Uh, what, if it needs fixing? If there's something wrong with it, when it needs its MOT, all, the hell? all of these kind of things. Me, and it, I, I can't carry on this conversation because you, you, you're, you're killing me here. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> this is just ridiculous. I, I, I knew you had this background, but... I, right. That, but you, move, the, I'm the, the point is, so we need to move on quickly. The point is you need to sit at the desk the whole time to know all the information because the second that ship's late, that's your fault as the broker because the guy that's trading the oil is paying a fee for picking up the oil late. There's all sorts of fees incurred. So you will not last very long. It's all very well having the business, but it's another thing getting more business and maintaining it. Anyway, I developed off the back of that some really good relationships. And in the end, I did it for six years. In the end, I had, I would go out to lunch and I have such good relationships with young guys in the market who are in powerful positions. That they were, a bit, I don't know, five, six, seven years older than me. They would do the deal direct with the owner because it's quite a transparent market and you have to nominate a broker. So I'd be sitting at lunch, sending the last done contract, filling out the details in the template and getting the brokerage fee. It was really unsatisfying. And I was going to go like, yeah, fine. I might do quite well until I'm 50. But what have I actually achieved sending an email and sitting at this desk the whole time? How much are we talking per, per transaction there? Oh, there, there were points that I'd make tens of thousands a day just from doing nothing, like regularly. You don't seem happy when you say that. I wasn't, no. But I've changed a lot in that time. And there's things that I find a lot more enjoyment and satisfaction out of now than doing that. I don't need the fastest car. I don't need... Like, that's not confidence as a person. Confidence is self-satisfaction through something you've achieved. And that I have found bundles of in cycling. And that, that is why I also, with these young guys that are coming through, I completely recognize those feelings and disruptions they're having in their personality. Because I've been there. You know, it's frustration wanting to prove yourself. I always had a big problem with getting into the industry and having business directed my way and just sort of being in the right place and doing the business. It's a bit like coming through the British Cycling Academy in Manchester. You see these young guys, they don't necessarily have fantastic results or Palmares or show exceptional talent, but they're in the right place and they filter in with the right people, right agent, straight in Ineos, straight in the world, top world tour teams, but they're nothing special. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just a way of the world. When I was started in cycling, I was like, God, I'm, like, I'm better than these guys. Why can't I get a contract? And I found that frustrating. But then you take the rough with the smooth and I'm very lucky for many things. And some things you have to push through more barriers to get where you want to be. And that's why I would never complain because that's, that's just how it is. As much as I want to talk to you about this city stuff for the next two, three hours, five hours, we can't. We need to move on. Mm. Um, when did you finish in the city? 
25. Retired? Well, um, an indefinite break, let's say. And is that when you became, you know, Richmond Park hero? Um, you know, you found a bike. Was it one of those mythic moments where it's like, wow, this is, I think I found. I mean, because it sounds to me kind like of, almost yeah. like a longing. You know, you're Alex Richardson. You've obviously come from a, a dad who's successful. Mm. You've got brothers. You've got sisters. That's competitiveness. Tennis didn't quite work out. City didn't quite work out. Um, school didn't quite work out. I, w- I wouldn't say those things didn't work out. No, sorry. Uh, I'd say I, mean, I mean that in the sense of uh, you didn't enjoy them. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, and sorry. I could have, with the school, fine. I did fine, you know. Like, And then with the yeah. work, I could have done that for as long as I wanted and had success in that, but it didn't do it for me. No. I think that's a really important point. So how did you find the bike? How did it come about? So with the cycling after work, you know, at 21, I had, uh, I was married with two, well, one child and then a second to follow. So we had kids as well. You know, William was four. With the lady upstairs? Chiara. How did you meet? Just in town, actually. She was visiting a friend for the weekend and summer's evening, I wanted to go home. A friend of mine I'd met for dinner and he said, oh, come on, let's like, you're so boring. Let's go for a drink somewhere. 7.30 in the evening and I said, oh, I'm fine, I'll go for one. And uh, yeah, she was standing outside and ended up somehow getting talking to her. I think another bloke started talking to her actually and I, was like, I started talking to him to talk to her. Were you good at talking to ladies back then? Maybe not for the first five minutes, but after 10.15, I got a few topics that she, I felt I'd grasped her interest. And from then... I worked out her mate was working the next day and she was just going to go around London. So I said, look, said look, let me take you somewhere else and do something different. And I took her to the countryside, had a burger, walked, showed, like showed her dorking. And yeah, from there, we traveled every day for, well, every weekend for a year until we... Where did she live? Where was she then? Uh, she was an hour north of Venice in Italy. So every weekend you would... Every single weekend. What, you'd either go there or she'd... Both, yeah. But wouldn't miss a beat on that. Because I said to her, are you committed? And she was committed. <laughs> I knew today was going to be interesting, but like, yeah, it's, this, is, this is easily the most stunned I've ever been in a podcast. Hands down. Hands down. This is the most stunned I've ever been. Every weekend, without fail, she came. So she must have, did she, did she work? Was she working then? Um, she was working for an elect- her father's electronics company. So she was a little bit more flexible with that. I think I helped her out on some tickets and this kind of thing. And after a few months, I was so into her. She was older than I was, right? She's eight years older than I am. And, uh, but I wanted a woman who knows what she wants and wasn't there to mess around. You know, I didn't want like some 24-year-old that didn't know what she wanted. Like, she's a woman. She wants a family. Like, done. So after a few months, I said, Right, I'm pretty into you. Like, let's get our names tattooed on the arm. You didn't. And we did that, yeah. I've got one just on the, underneath my forearm and she got my name on the back of her wrist. Alex, you show me. How, so how long have you been together for? Uh, four months. I was sort of fiercing her up on a few things, you know, wanting her commitment. And uh, yeah, after eight, nine months, you know, we were both pretty committed. And then we had William. So really throwing ourselves in the deep end. And then after a year, we moved in. And look, since then, we've always been on the, we've, we've had our, we've obviously had our differences with the small things, but on the big things in life, we've always been on the same page, which is, is fantastic. 
And she's amazing, you know, she, she's super to put up with me as well. Well, to put up with a cyclist. <laughs> the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. This first half of the podcast has been phenomenal. You are a cyclist. <laughs> let's, you know, let's get back to cycling. I hope I haven't bored everyone too much with the detail. Have you fuck? Yeah. How did the cycling, you know, just go, please. Do what, just impress us again. Anyway, the family thing and the continue to work thing happened at about 25. As we say, we had our second child, Electra, and I took sort of indefinite leave with the paternity stuff. We're cycling around Richmond Park all the time, and then a friend said, oh, you know, you should go and try this race, do this, and it got more and more obsessive from then. And here we are today. Do you think yeah. you're an addict? Do you think you... I'm just someone who's very obsessive and likes to do things properly. I would like to work things out, dissect them, and understand how I can come better. But cycling is one of those sports where if you put 100 in, you, you do get most of that back. True. Do you know what? I couldn't um, agree more with you. I remember when I first started out, I said that. I said, thank God I'm doing a sport where I'm in control. Yeah. Not like football, where you've got to be, you've got to be good. Sorry, I don't mean in cycling, you don't have to be good, but... Raw talent comes into it more. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 I could not agree with what you just said more. Like you can... Apart- You're in control. You're the master of your yeah. ship. Unlike, can I get better at taking free kicks? Am I going to be better at conversions in rugby, whatever? Yeah. I, I do know what you mean. Every day you can wake up and go, right, I want to become more powerful. Mm. And your body, year on year, builds on what it's already got. So you you just naturally get better, stronger, more endurance. Every single year you continue in the sport. And that's why people have their best years, you know, from 32 to 36. Because it's so, provided the head stays on, the body continues to adapt. Do you not think that's changed recently? In terms of the younger guys that are coming through. Yeah, because I would, I would disagree with that now. Yeah. Me and Chris Opie had this chat. Yeah. It's, it's changed. Good point. It's a, very, <laughs> yeah, it's a very good point. It's completely changed. Yeah. The Giro now is, how many years in a row it's been won by um, the Tour? I think the days of Bjorn Reese winning it, you know, Lance winning at an older age, Wiggins winning at an older age, Froome winning mm. at an older It's gone. And it's because training has, has evolved. It's For not sure. just base miles in winter. Yeah. These, these fuckers are now doing outrageous efforts in December. Yeah. Technology's changed. The, you know, you're a, you're a fan of technology, mm. aerodynamic. It's a mad, uh, it's a, I, I don't think we're going to, uh, Remco at the moment. Do you think you could hold on to Remco? No, no way. Well, Seriously. It depends on what course. Because he, he did 35. Point five miles an hour for his time trial the other day for 33 it's, it's, it's outrageous. Could I you mean, do that? Not not on a time trial bike because I'm just not dialed on the time trial bike and like he'll have a lower CDA than I could have because he's smaller and he'll be so dialed uh, and he's probably got similar power. I mean, Remco, I don't think is particularly powerful. Actually, that's... You know, let's not take away from that. For his size, he's ex- 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 exceptionally powerful. But the reason he climbs so well is is because he's quite small as well, right? Um, but upper climb, like I get belted immediately from these guys. Like it, from a UK perspective, I climb well, but 
from a world tour climbing perspective, like the levels and levels and levels in this sport, are just it. just something else. Yeah. Like, because Dan Bingham set the hour record, didn't he recently? Yeah, but he's but he's not as powerful as Wiggins. So how do you do that? Um, it's just very specialist and extremely well well drilled on you know the reducing his CDA, making everything so efficient in terms of uh, drivetrain and efficiency, the tires he's using, pressures, rim combinations, rim widths, and how it's all integrating as a package. It's the whole system that is allowing him to go that fast. The, the power he's producing is one element of that. So is that dope performance? No, 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 absolutely. You think that's legal? That should be oh, com- absolutely legal. But how much did that cost? Oh, what, his equipment? Yeah. So I reckon Ineos have probably done in the region of 400 grand for that performance. Okay, so that's not a fair playing field. Well, is, is cycling ever a fair playing field? Well, I mean, it's, it's been this, 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 is, this is also why I lost interest at that level. Sorry, can I just stop you there? So, because I'm quite passionate about this. Yeah. So the world hour record, mm. I think, was normally in the past seen as a physical achievement yeah pushing the human body to a point of exhaustion who's the best mm. well yeah the the hour, the hour record back in the day was probably who's the best mm. and now it sounds to me the hour record is more about who has a budget who has a c is it a cda lowest coefficient of drag yeah yeah that's the shittest thing i've ever heard <laughs> And it, it seems to me... <laughs> it's all part of it, though, isn't it? it? To go far. Yeah, it is. Fair enough. No, it is. Yeah, yeah. I completely get your point. It maybe Dan takes a romance out of the sport. Dan Bingham won. He's not as talented as Bradley Wiggins or Thomas Decker who did it. Yeah. Victor Campanarts, whatever. But he won. So he won because his CDA is low. Is that fair? Okay. Is, uh, is what, that why fair? Why is his CDA so low? Because he's done a lot of homework. So you can't take away from the determination. And also, physically... Who knows whether those other guys can fold themselves and bend themselves into that position on the bike to hold that for an hour. That's a lot of training that's gone into that. So you cannot take away from that performance. Nah, it's, you, it's, it's I don't everything. agree with you there, Alex. You're talking, you're talking shit. <laughs> you, I'm not bothered about if you can fold and bend. And I'm not bothered about, you mate, we're, this is cycling. Come on. You're better than that. <laughs> I'm not bothered about I'm if you're bending that. and you're folding and you're, you know, this isn't ballet, mate. We're, you know, you know. Fair play to him. He's done it. And I've never met the lad. Yeah. And he seems like a great human. But this, by, by the way, yeah. this is nothing against Dan Bingham. Yeah. Uh, if I saw him shake his hand, hug him, whatever, give him a bum tap. Sounds like a great guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like you said, it, it does take away the romance. And I, and I don't care what you say. Even you must admit that. Of course. Do you have your levers tilted in? <sighs> no, I don't. But there are, I think there are, look, there are ways that you can make looking sleek and aerodynamic, nice and romantic at the same time. It doesn't always have to be the aero socks up to the knees. Um, and some of those things, you know. Google Malcolm Elliott now if you listen to this podcast. Look at the socks he used to wear. <laughs> ankle, no one's ever rocked ankle socks since. Uh, one Antonio Fletcher did for a bit. No one wears ankle socks to the now. No. Can you imagine wearing ankle socks now? No, exactly. You'd, you'd be, it'd be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. But he used to rock them and he'd look cool as. But you think you can make it look aesthetically? 
You can. And I think that's a really important part of it. Why did, why did I get into cycling? Because it just, it's a beautiful sport. Watching guys go up mountains is a, just sweating on the limit is very romantic. It's, it's obsessive. It's beautiful. Cathartic as well, isn't it? And what has always fascinated me about cycling is you can go out from your front door, right? You go and flick yourself for four hours. You come home feeling totally ruined. Yet you come back and you're completely clean and you look no different. For me, that's like you've, you've been in a boxing match. You've been in a... Do you know, I've just had an over... Sorry, I've just had a moment there that I haven't felt for years. I've just had an overwhelming sense that I want to get on a bike and I somehow want to try and beat you. Not that it's ever going to happen. And not because I don't like you, but you've just motivated me in a way that I've never had. I, some, I, I don't know. You've just you've kind of took me to a place there that I've not felt for years. Like, you know, you've, you've made me kind of like dream. You've, you've made me kind of like... And, and that's, that's, that's what I try and do every day with, it, with some kind of a challenge, whether it's an hour, two, three, four five even like i want to have that freedom and experience when i'm out on my bike and just go and be come back feeling what an amazing experience and it is it really is it's very unique in that sense and as you get older legally you cannot get those highs without having repercussions or damages off the back of it amen to that i know that yeah i know, I know what you mean there yeah Yes, it can be damaging in terms of tired and useless off the bike, but fucking hell, there's a lot worse things that you can be doing. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic sport. I've met fantastic people doing the sport. So many more people than I would have done otherwise. And it's, it's so genuine as well. The relationships that I've built in the sport are so genuine. I've got people that will help for whatever, just through the love of the sport. And that's very pure. In business in London, you don't get that. Like, what can you give me? And what am I going to get from you? And where's the balance from that? How, how, how much can I push that boundary? Do you find it hard to trust? I keep my friendship group very small. And those that will know me, know me well, get anything from me. And I'll support them. But I don't trust anyone outside of that. You know, that's a very whole comment. But I'm very skeptical. I'm a very skeptical person outside of those 10 people, I'm very skeptical of who I surround myself with. I only surround myself with positive people um, because I just, I have no time for excess. And that's why I'm, I get on so well with someone like Yanta because he's just such a respectful, driven person. He will never ask anything from someone which he wouldn't expect from them himself. And frankly, like everyone else, can do one. I'm a very sensitive person if it's one of those people, but outside of that, I will just put on a blank and I could see awful things and wouldn't faze me. Because I'm willing to go through it myself. We were saying earlier that, uh, you know, I'm a little bit, uh, I look back at my time training in this yeah. and it was quite negative. And, Mm. Well, there were great times. Yeah. But, no, very interesting what you said. But, um, for, but yeah. on the whole, I look back at it and it was not far from bullying. Mm. Definitely. Uh, and I wasn't strong enough at the time because I wanted to get better. So I put up with the shit. Of course, yeah. Of course you do. Because you don't want to train on your own. Yeah. You want to be in the clique. They know who they are. 
And the reason why, who was I speaking to about you and Yanto the other day? I was speaking to someone and I said, no, you'd really like them because they're positive. Mm. And he went, what? I went, no, nah, you'd, you'd, if you went out training with them, you'd love them because they're positive. And, they'll, and, and they actually like believe in you and they want you to do well. He went, what? I went, yeah, I know. Imagine that. Going on a training ride and it's not bitter. It's not dour, grim. It's not like, hey, up, lad. All I ever had was just, oh, Tom, you can't corner. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a shame that I look back. Of course. It yeah. is a shame, but it's, it is what it is. And I, and I feel how I feel. Don't get wrong, there's some great people along the way in Leeds and yeah. in Yorkshire. But when I, you know, worked with Yanto and he's become a friend and we went out training and, I, and it was the same feeling as you have when your dad believes in you and you had my old headmaster, Mr. Abraham, yeah. you get a bit emotional, you get a bit teary. Uh, he would always say things like, um, God, you're powerful, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'd, you know, when Jurgen Klopp, I'm a yeah. mad Liverpool fan, if he hugs you or if he, he says, wow, you've done great, all of a sudden it's like, Fucking hell, I am. Doesn't take much to yeah. make someone feel amazing. Exactly. It's a positive reinforcement. You can crush someone because we're cyclists. We believe in ourselves and we don't. Yeah. We're, we're confident we're not. But when someone goes, you, you don't need to lose weight, Tom. You look great. Of course. I was like, what? He was the first person who said that to me. Yeah. Everyone always used to say, because I was always big. He said, no, you're powerful. Good. I went, what? I went, yeah, good. Because you know how we talk, so he goes like that. Yeah, good. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all right. And then like, you leave, you say goodbye, and like, you go home, you're like, you know, I think I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, and, and I, get the same, I get the same feeling with you. There isn't this kind of, and look, it's sport. There isn't going to be, we're not all going to be lovey-dovey, because that, that wouldn't work. Yeah. It has to be quite fierce. Of course. But it's really refreshing. That you, the first thing you said to me upstairs was that you, you love to see people do well. Because I'm trying to get you in contact with this guy to ride him. Yeah. And I'm sure you'll go out with him. Yeah. And it was so nice what you said. You said, oh no, I, I want to see people happy. Yeah. And you know, not everyone is going to go and win the Tour de France. Not everyone is going to, you know, you're talking 20 people in the world that have national success or win stages of big races or win the Tour de France. You know, it's, it's 30, 40 people that can experience that. But there's a lot of people that can go out for an hour or two and really enjoy themselves. And if you come into contact with those people, just encourage them because that will make them feel good. And that's all, as human beings, we want to feel. You know, we want, we're riding our bike to better ourselves, go out and get some exercise, meet some good people, not to be, you know, yes, as competitive. I mean, when Yanto, I, Richard, Todd, these guys, you know, our local groups, We've got some really strong local riders. And when we were on the road, we were all trying to sort of work each other over a little bit, you know, pull a slightly longer turn, accelerate through a little bit more. And over the two-hour two session, let's say, for example, you just slightly work into people. And there's a million ways you can do that in cycling, right? In a chain gang type effort. But, you know, we're all great friends and it's competitive. It's a really healthy amount of competition but the second we get to the cafe after if we stop on a saturday morning or whatever we say god like fucking i was suffering up that climb and then you hit me over the top 
I was fully on the ropes there. It's just, it's a great experience and everyone can enjoy that. And I live for that as we all do. And that is what's really healthy about this group that we have here in London. And the, the London community is growing. We've got so many good riders around now. You know, 2030. There's always a ride every day of the week to go on at four o'clock in the morning or at eight o'clock in the evening. Do you have a big WhatsApp group or something? Or is it a website or something? Else? Probably about 10 WhatsApp groups. But, and if you are looking to get into cycling, there are plenty of platforms out there with, I don't know, London Dynamo, Onyx, uh, Lecole CC, Kingston Wheelers. And then when, when you, you're in those groups, then the continental riders sometimes go to them. So then you start speaking to them and you go on their less formal rides, let's say, you know? When people think of, oh, you know, if you're a cyclist, where do you live? Where do you base yourself? Because you've got your family here. Mm. Do you think this is the best place, the conducive place to be a good rider? Or would you prefer to be like in the Dales, in like, you know, these traditional places where you can ride? Or can you get everything out that you need around Richmond Park and, and around and all that? So someone asked me this the other day, and I think to remain competitive and take the stress out of going out and doing hard training in the dales and really formal training that's been set by a coach to remain competitive you need these kind of group rides that are really hard you know if you set a route and the routes are all right around here oh yeah you go out in surrey and there's there's like a four minute climb six minute climb you know there might be three or four of them on the route and if you've got good riders like that's that's four by five minutes that you wrote down in your training peaks, done. You know, whether it's four and a half minutes or five minutes, 40, it's the same thing, isn't it? So it's a slightly less scientific approach. And with the training side of it, I have been very scientific over the years. And I think I'm going the best I have gone because I've taken the thinking out of it to a degree. Training peaks to me, I had it for a while and I had a power meter for a while. And I think it's sort of bullshit. Because how can Training Peaks tell me the stress of throughout my mental health? How can, oh, train, how can Training Peaks tell me a TSS One if, I've been on, if I've been on my feet all day at work? Absolutely. How can Training Peaks tell me the men, that uh, it can maybe give you a ballpark figure, but fuck that. Completely agree. And I, I know my body. Training Peaks would tell me you can train today. I remember it said, what was it, a CTL or something, or some score. Gave me some score, Alex. And yeah. I was like, yeah, Tom, you're fine to go to us. I couldn't get out of bed that day. Yeah. So you're wrong. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm right. You're wrong. <laughs> it's, it's one dimension of, of 30 things that go into riding the bike that day. I'm already getting obsessed now on Strava. You know, you can have your progress score. Yeah. Don't pretend you don't know what I mean, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's on 60 now. Yeah. Is that good? I think so, yeah. But if it gets, getting low, if it gets lower... I'm starting to get obsessed. Yeah. But if I had four days off or five days off, that'd be probably good. It'd be, you know, because you're re-motivated and, and all the rest of it. And I'd, I'm due a break because the score just keeps going up or down. Mm. So if you have a week off or a few days off, it goes down. But you need a rest. Of course. But it doesn't factor in a rest week. It, your score just goes down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, you know, for, for example, my training, I'm very old school with the way I train, you know. It's go out and ride hard. Like, what's the route? Right, what time can I do it in? But then on the equipment side of it, I'm very modern 
in terms of that, you know, wider profiles, that could be the real, I've looked at all the combinations out there. I'm very up to date on all the technology and tested everything, how ergonomically and through the kinetic chain, like one product from one brand can affect it in the shape of it and result in you having a better position on the bike. I'm very into all that, but my physiology doesn't change that much. Like for 10 minutes, I do X amount of watts. Like that is within five to 10 watts all year round. And how many is that for, for, for 10 minutes? I think this year I've done just shy of 440, 438 or 439 uh, for 10 minutes. But then racing's different, isn't it? Like racing, you're on the gas all day and there are spikes and it's about energy consumption. It's about so many different things. You know, every, there's so many guys now that can do four by 10 minutes at top world tour level, but then I don't know why they're getting dropped at 350 watts after three hours, you know, at nationals, for example. You know, there's more that goes into it and people need to understand and work that out. Like cycling is a very dynamic sport. You can train physically. Yeah. You probably know every little session there is. I do a lot of riding at speed. But can you train mentally? If you surround yourself with the right people. Because I would say that cycling is who endures the most. Heinrich Ausler said that. Yeah. And I would agree. So it's all well and good if someone can do these amazing sessions. Yeah. But if you, we're on the start line, I could probably crack you. Yeah. In the first two seconds. I'll say something. Or I'll get in your head. <laughs> I, yeah. I used you know, I, I, I would, back in, you know, I wasn't that good. I couldn't train very well. I found it very mm. hard. I could do the hours, but I, I couldn't go hard. I could never do time trial efforts because I just got bored. Yeah. Couldn't do it. Bike race, you'd have to kill me. Yeah. That's something that's innate as well. It's a privilege. I would say that's worth more than any aerodynamic bike. Yeah. Any testing. Any Ineos 400 pound. Any, you know, if you've got that, you can go, get an extra 50. I'd say it's worth... It's, it's, it's priceless. Mm. It's priceless. Completely agree. But then well, I know what you're going to say now. What if you get that person and add that? And add that. I knew you were going to say that yeah. and I haven't got an answer to that. That's, and and that's an where the sport that. is now. I haven't got an answer to that. <laughs> that's where the sport is now. You've got to be doing everything. Everything. It's become more competitive. It's as simple as that and there's more money in it now. And also with experience, it takes quite a few years to understand also like i i doubt myself sometimes i question myself all the time but with experience no one can say anything to me now because with experience again you get that innate confidence in what you can do so it doesn't matter if you say something to me at the start line like i'll just smile you know we'll Is see being there? we'll see these things have been said to me a million times when it was a lot fucking harder in the first few years. That was when I needed the fucking help. Now I don't need anything. I do it myself now. Wow. But, but I'm going to use that experience to help these younger guys. Jack Rootkin Gray, who was second at Rydale at St. Piran, he's come through, let's say, a more old school environment. But someone like him doesn't need that environment. He needs a different environment. And an, an intelligent person will recognize that. And he's an extremely powerful person when you get his head in the right place. He fucking believes he can win. He's a fucking lion, you know? 
he's going places and I'll make sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. But that's what they need and that's what these young guys need. Like make, allow them to be someone, you know, just because they don't fit that first mold. Do you think you were a victim of previous success before you came to cycling? You can dress it up in a million different ways. Like I'm, I'm happy with who I am now and uh, I'm very lucky. You know, I could have had more luck in cycling. People could have helped me more. I could have got on teams, but then there are worse examples than that. And there are better examples. You make your own luck. And every day I wake up and I love riding my bike and I've got wonderful family and I'm very lucky. So I have no, if something doesn't go my way one day, then I need to get over it and get on with it. That's my view, anyway. And what's the solution to that? How do I make it better? How do I make it more enjoyable for myself? And that's a, a, an issue I had uh, with the world to a level. The Alpecin thing, did you just not enjoy that? I did, but you got into the sport and what drives me through the sport is excellence and working out how to be excellent. In Alpecin, it's a Belgian team and let's say in my case, I was a pigeonholed into riding on the front. You know, I can do that quite well, but there was nothing else there more there for me. And I recognized that that was the right thing from management to employ me for that kind of role. But for me also, it didn't really do it for me. Right. So that's just like any other business situation. It just, it works or it doesn't. But, you know, you can stay there and do that role and become more and more dissatisfied and whatever and just go about. But then, yeah, they've got Vanderpoel and they've got all these other guys that can de deliver. So, too right. You know, you back them. Did you meet him? Was he yeah, lovely guy. Really, really nice guy. And I still speak to the management. You know, I've got a great relationship with them. What was he like to train with and race with? Them? So, I will never forget on a training camp when, like, we are riding up this climb at, I don't know, 370 380 watts you know and everyone's breathing in the group quite heavily and he decides to attack over like the crest right 45 seconds from the top and like someone like me i can then or most of the guys in that group they can then do like five six 650 watts over the top you know and that's enough but like he just snapped through the cassette and I've never seen someone take off like, um, literally the only way I can describe it is a motorbike. I've ne like, it was like a motorbike going, f just turning the throttle and going full gas over the top, like up to 35 miles an hour over the top, not, not 26, not 27, up this hill from threshold. And that is the strongest quality he has. He has that ability to go really fast, recover, and then go really fast and recover. So he's always, always gets himself, he's got the tools to get himself in the right place all the time and make up all sorts of mistakes. And just a really nice guy, like just likes riding his bike, doesn't care about anything else. Not interested in like, what someone's written on training peaks. That's also another thing, the, the really good guys that I've met over the years are less and less scientific about their training. Like they just go out and ride fast or ride an effort fast. But that's also it. Riding at speed is not about how much power you can do. It's a combination of the two. Like if you can't sit on the bike properly, then you're not going to go fast. Wow. Um, right. 
aims then let's just quickly you know what what you know you've got the tour of britain next week you know it's gonna you're at st Piran now you're you're 32 you seem like you're in a really good place yeah i'm quite happy with it all uh, i was speaking to a few teams about doing stuff at world tour level and helping where athletes you know the younger generation that have also seen me come through helping them develop because I, th I really think there's a lot that I've learned over the years, be that in aerodynamics or a combination of how the bike responds dynamically as like a performance consultant type role. Also the geometries in certain bikes, I think they can all be changed, but I'm not going to say too much because people need to work all this stuff out for themselves. Right? So I would, I would, I'm definitely interested in doing that type of role but it needs to be at the top where I can make a difference. I'm not interested in doing it at some mediocre world tour team that are just making ends meet, that don't have the budget to invest in the riders. And I'm sorry, that's again, it's part of the sport, which we've talked about. It's an unfair part of the sport. And the reality is no matter how good some of these riders are in an education first, if they're riding a set of wheels that are 400 grams rotational weight heavier than a Jumbo Visma, like you just, you're just not competitive. Like the guy can do five watts more than you, 10 watts more, 15 watts. Getting belted, mate. Yeah, I, I love you, but in the same breath, like we're the opposite when it comes to, but that's just because I've missed out on the last five years yeah. and I'm not. The technology's yeah, so far ahead. I'm not, like if you'd have seen me back in the day, mate, you'd have, I reckon you've had a breakdown. If you'd have seen me riding mm. on my race bike. But it's also reassuring that why did you get dropped? Well, actually, do you know what? It's not all you. There's these five different things we need to look at. You know, your psychology on the day, like the wheel set you're riding. I'm doing work with a friend of mine now. Like it's so anal, the work we're doing in terms of we're breaking down wheel sets on the market and the rim profiles and doing different combination of hubs and spokes and different types of spokes. And the, there are what's coming off the shelves is so far from optimal. But yeah, the teams, they don't have time to look at this, like the logistics that go into it, just getting the riders to the start line. So go on then, what are the best wheels out there? And these are Chris King hubs, zips? Yeah, so Chris King hubs are super heavy. Envy, Envy have heavy rims. They're, is that good? They're, they've, well, the trend is to go like a wider internal diameter now. Um, I, I could tell you a combination, but it's not actually Erto certified so i'd be telling you the wrong thing but you can run combinations out there now on say for example hookless rims with some clincher tires that are light and really fast and you can fact you know there are hubs out there that are really light as well but it's more rotational weight and rotational weight and wheel depth and width but all those different combinations the tire and how it interacts with the rim is worth a lot yeah what about bikes? Balance of weight and aerodynamics. Pinarello's yeah. still good? I've got my... I really like the Pinarello. I did really like it. But there's one fundamental flaw in the geometry of that Pinarello, which means you'll always be compromising. Go on, what's that? Ineos need to work that out for themselves. You being serious? Fully serious. And I don't think they have... It would take two years to develop, but they need to really look into the geometry of that bike. Oh, and you reckon you found that out? I, I know it. And that's why I've sold my Pinarello. Are you on an S-Works now? 
I'm riding an SFX. And is that all right? They're pretty good, yeah. So what's the best bike? And when I say best, I mean a combination of what's that lightness and yeah, like you, you want you want you can't be giving away half a kilo to the weight limit. Like you've got to be on the weight limit and you've got to prioritize rotational weight to get there. Colnago, C sixty the Colnagos, are they good? Nah, no. And you want something that allows you to what get What do you mean into- no? Target the Apogee, what, what do you mean no? UAE Emirates are, you know, you don't rate them as a bike. Oh, There's better and faster. Yeah. Tadeg Pogacar, if you look at what Jumbo Visma and Emirates are doing, and, and also if you look at the data riding up the climbs, Vinegard and Podrakar, Podrakar is working harder than him. Like it's, it's as simple as that. He's more, probably more talented, but Jumbo Visma are doing everything. Like you can't fault them almost. Ineos are a step behind. The, all these other guys, Quickstep are now falling a little bit behind. It is the first season, Quickstep aren't the boys. Yeah, and what were they on a couple of years ago? Avengers, they were dominant. They had six guys in the front. I'm not saying that's just the frame set. All right, now I'll start to agree with you. Because I did think this. I've always looked at Quickstep. They always win the most races every yeah. year. Now it's equal. I think it's 40, 41 and 41 between UAE, Yumbo, and Quickstep. Yeah. You look at Yumbo, those Sabellos look dangerous. They look quick. Yeah. And do you think they've got that dialed in? I think you can, you can still get the aero bike better. But is this not going to develop into like Facebook like it's never finished? It probably will. Um, and the, the sport's constantly evolving, but... Is this making, oh, we're going to have to do a separate podcast on this because this is, we will we'll never agree. Yeah. But to me, the need, you know, they, they banned a certain type of swimming short in swimming for mm. the Olympics, didn't they? Because it was unfair. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. So surely they're going to ban, you know, this can't carry on. It's not sustainable, Alex. It's, it's, it's not sustainable. They have guidelines, don't they? And if they're meeting the guidelines, then they, they can always goes close to that boundary or as far away. Do you they, think time trials should be done on road bikes? I think time trialing is a, it's a very romantic side of the sport. It's been there for years and it's a very pure effort. It's not something I particularly do because I, I prefer to work out the road cycling. Road cycling is what does it for me. I don't really like the whole, the look of it probably actually. I know quite a lot about tra- time trialing, but I'm definitely not specialist in that department what i do know a lot about is road cycling dynamics and all these things you say about the equipment side on the road and the beauty of the road is that the podricar or the next guy can still win because he has more or less power because there's more that goes into it his psychology on the day how motivated he is uh fueling sleep uh, his pillows i don't know could be anything it's all of the above and you have to those 30 different parameters are constantly evolving tires what's the trade-off between getting a puncture or all these type of margins you've got to work everything out and that's course dependent it's 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 rolling it's changing on the day but there's there's certainly trends and formulas that you that fit most people. The Harry Tamfield, he's quite into all that, isn't he? Yeah. Did you get on with Harry and Dan Yeah, I re- I, do you know what? Harry, on one of my first years, was one of the guys that opened my thought process to this kind of thing. And then I've really got 
exaggerated and got obsessive with it for the last five years. You should um, catch up with Alistair Brownlee as well. Mm. You and him would... Um, I saw him the other day. I told him I was coming down. And I think you and him would... Yeah. Iron Man. And yeah. He's tough. Yeah, yeah. And uh, exactly. And then at the bottom line of it, if you can't... He doesn't look into any of this. Oh, yeah. no, he, he has started now. But then if you don't want to suffer on the day or if you can't grit your teeth, then go and do something else. Don't turn up. That's a massive part, but keeping these athletes in a healthy place is a very powerful thing. Do, do you know what? I'm really glad we've met because we've met today and I feel like you're a hybrid between me and the aerodynamics. This, this is what I think is a massive problem in some of these teams. They employ a performance guy and he's a scientist. He doesn't know how to communicate to the athletes. Alex, I've said this before. What you've just said, I've said. It's all well and good when you have a coach and it's do this today, what's do, 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 do this, do this. Marcel Kittel quit the sport and he was the greatest sprinter. Mm, he was 20. Something's fundamentally wrong. Something's then. wrong there. Yeah. You don't see football strikers like Mo Salah quitting. Yeah. That'd be very weird. It doesn't fucking happen. Yeah, good point. Roger Federer didn't quit. Pete kind of quit. He just got top 10 of the world. Great cyclists quit mm. at young ages all the time. I go on pro cycling stats and I look at the graveyard of 26, 25. It's very short shelf life. Mm. And they quit. And it's not because it's too hard. They love cycling. These guys love cycling. If they hadn't have maybe been what's faster, you know, um, <laughs> uh, whatever. Yeah. But it's all well and good having a performance coach who is going to be like, uh, I know Sky had Steve Peters, didn't they? Yeah. And they helped and, you know, but I was going to start a brand. I was going to start a charity type thing where you have a sticker on your team bus or on your jersey. And, it, you know, I and it shows that, and Tyler Hamilton wanted to do it. And it shows that you, in your team, you have a go-to person who, when you're feeling shit, I'm struggling today. Yeah. I'm, I'm having a tough time today. And who is qualified? And this is why I think someone like a Steve Cummings is one of the best things that's happened to Ineos. He's a very intelligent guy. I've read his book. I'm a massive fan of him. But he's a fantastic go-between between... between understanding what's going on in the team environment, what different people want, and the riders. That's one of the best things that can possibly happen to that team. And that's why he's doing the tour. That's why he's gone straight to the top. It's all well and good dialing into these kits, rolling profiles. What's it called? Optimal, some hook spokes. Yeah, there's uh, all the different rounds. CD, yeah. yeah. So that's great. That is fantastic. You're missing one thing, that that rider is turning up and he's 100% on that day. And he probably is because he's an athlete and he's probably focused, yeah. yeah. But what about if that athlete is a bit of like a Tyson Fury type? What about if that athlete's having to go through a divorce? Well, if, what, what happens if he's starting to have an eating disorder? What happens if he's thinking about doping? What happens if he's got a recreational drug problem? What about if he hasn't got any friends? What about mm. if he's struggling to leave the house after 4 p.m. and he has to be home by every day at 4 p.m. and that's become an obsession? Yeah. And, how, and how do you create greatness? Look at Tom Pidcock, right? He's done it within his parameters. He's been very clever to control his environment all the way through. 
that's how you deliver someone that can wake up on the day and ride off on outdoor outdoors. You know, he's he does magnificent things. Chompy cut. This is funny you say this. He's uh, unique, but he knows what he needs. Don't get some coach yeah. who doesn't understand him telling him about the science. Pickcock don't he didn't care about that. I'd agree with that. Um, and that we'll he, have a chat about that another yeah. day because I've got my thoughts on the, on Tom Pickcock. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. He's but, another Vanderpool. He's like, fuck you, leave yeah, me alone. Exactly. Yeah. I'll do what I want. But like, there's space for that. And Ineos are very good at managing that space because they know what they've got. What I'm probably saying is that I would like to see as much uh, hugs and nurture going in as much as CDL and, and, and that. And I, and I think you probably agree with that. Definitely. Uh, because if we did, we'd have been on But look, Alex, you have given... Me, Yoshka, at the audience, you've given us everything that I was hoping you would give. Well, that's fantastic. I'm not yeah. saying we're going to be best mates after this. You know, you live a far away. Um, I hope we become friends on some level. If we don't, it's fine. Uh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> but it has been, I wish I could go for a ride with you. Uh, I think, no, definitely. you know, I feel really motivated. You know, I've trained, consi- I d- you know, consistently recently to get myself back into some kind of shape. Yeah. I was in a bad place a year ago. <laughs> Mate, good luck at the Tour Britain. Thank you very much. Good luck. I'll be on Carlton Bank, the Helmsley stage. Just <sighs> give me yeah, a, it's been, give, me, give me a push if I'm. I'll in give the you car. a push. But mate, thank you so much. Honestly, you are an interesting, interesting individual. I I, I can generally say I've, I've been speechless in sections today. Mm. Honestly, I have. It's everything I hope for. Fantastic. I'm really pleased to hear that. Thanks, man. Good luck on your ride. Thanks so much, Tom. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast with Tommy Bustard. Subscribe now on iTunes and Spotify.